Morning, church. It's good to see you. Revelation chapter 8. Uh, we're in chapter 8 here. These are, these are not easy messages, and you know that already if you've been tracking with this series. These are not easy messages, but, but, but compared to chapter 9, chapter 8 is like a breeze. Uh, so, you know, every once in a while in the church, you'd have these, like we, we used to call them 100% Sundays, where you try to get like everybody to come to church, like, you know, friend day or these kinds of things, like invite friends, bring people to church, let's just pack the place. And next Sunday with Revelation 9 might be like, don't come to church Sunday. It would be, uh, that's, that's how harsh chapter 9 is. But we're in, good news is you've come this week, so it's uh, chapter, chapter 8, but it still has its own weightiness to it. Uh, we often think that the only way, and we had, we've had some soul-stirring uh, worship here already this morning, but we often think that the only way to have a soul-stirring moment is to be in a place like this at a time like this with exuberant, you know, cheering or singing. It needs to be the kind of the big thing when the crowd we're in erupts and we're swept into this euphoria of the moment, this moving experience. You might think about a like a concert you went to, or you might think of some playoff game that you went to where the crowd was just swept up in the moment and it was an incredible euphoric experience. And it can happen that way. There's no doubt about it. I've been in experiences like that, but that's not the only way. In fact, uh, one of the observations repeatedly made by reporters uh, covering the Queen's funeral uh, last week was how quiet the thousands upon thousands of people on the streets of London were. How hushed it was. And the noise that you would expect with such numbers of people, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people in a busy city like London, you would expect it to be so noisy and it just wasn't. Instead, there was in its place this hushed reverence that comes with an overwhelming sense of the gravity of the moment. And that's not unlike what we read here in the opening verse of chapter 8. As the dramatic events of the last days are continuing to unfold for the Apostle John, he notes in verse 1, when the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence. There was silence in heaven for about half an hour. One commentator said that the, that, that the moment was filled with dreadful anticipation. And such a moment compels a response. A response from us, the readers, all these centuries later. What will I do? The question is, what will I do with, with, with what I'm reading here? What will I do in light of the events to come? How is this going to change my life now? Because if we've come here simply curious by apocalyptic literature and preaching on the end times, if we've come just to satisfy some, some insatiable need we have to try and figure out the future, then we've failed. We've failed as Christians. We've failed as listeners of God's word. The apocalyptic literature is given to us to encourage us, but also to challenge us in how we're living our Christian life. And so as we approach Revelation 8 today, the question has to be, how am I going to be different when I leave this place today, when this service ends and I turn off my television? How is my life going to be different? That's what the apocalyptic literature compels from us. 
And so let me read these 13 verses from Revelation 8. You follow along in your Bible as I do. When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about a half an hour. Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer. And he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Now, the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to blow them, the first angel blew his trumpet, and there followed hail and fire mixed with blood, and these were thrown upon the earth, and a third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all green grass was burned up. The second angel blew his trumpet, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood, a third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. The third angel blew his trumpet, and a great star fell from heaven, blazing like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters became Wormwood, and many people died from the water because it had been made bitter. The fourth angel blew his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of their light might be darkened, and a third of the day might be kept from shining, and likewise a third of the night. Then I looked, and I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead, woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth at the blasts of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. Well, in your notes and on the screen, here's what we're going to build this statement about Revelation 8. When heaven stops in expectant silence, I should expect God's next big move. Now listen, it starts with silence here, and we're not that good at silence. We're not that good at, at stopping, pausing, thinking, considering. In fact, two Sundays ago, after the queen had passed, we observed here in the service a moment of silence for the queen. I stood here and I waited a full 60 seconds. In fact, I wanted to make sure that we waited a full 60 seconds or that we had waited a full 60 seconds. So I had my assistant go and check the video and determine, yes, indeed, we waited a full minute in each of those. After the service, I had a couple people come to me and say, that was a really long time. It was 60 seconds. In fact, one of those services was about 58 seconds. That was a long time. That's what we think about silence. In fact, on the streets of London, in those photos you saw earlier on those streets of London, it was two minutes. For those who aren't good at math, that's twice as long as we waited. And they stood in silence. 
But then John here in Revelation 8.1, he says the silence lasted about a half an hour. That's 30 minutes. That's 30 times as long as we paused in the service for those who aren't good at math. And we can't even imagine that. How, 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 how hard that would be for us to pause and do nothing but reflect for 30 minutes. Because those people that came to me after the service who said that was a long time, they're reflecting what we're all thinking. In fact, if we were just to demonstrate this right now, to really make the point, I would pause the sermon. For you to really understand Revelation 8.1, I would have you all stand right now, set aside everything, put your phones down, close your Bibles, just everything, just stand there for the next 30 minutes. We would just be silent. How hard that would be. In fact, I've been preaching here for 21 years, and I would wager a guess that that would become the most memorable sermon I had ever preached. Because people would say, you know what he did? He probably didn't have enough time for sermon prep this week, and so he just had to stand there for 30 minutes. Do you know how long that is? But that makes the point, doesn't it? What, what John records here is so otherworldly. It's so out of the norm. And that's what ought to catch our attention. And that's what leads us to believe that this means God is on the move, that something big is about to go down. Bigger than the queen's funeral, which was massive. Bigger, if you're a student of World War II, bigger than the D-Day evasions, the, the, the largest amphibious invasion in the history of humanity. Bigger, bigger than, than the atomic bombs being dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, the, the two largest man-made explosions in history. The only time that such weapons have been deployed against human beings. Bigger than that. Bigger than 9-11 with all of its implications. Bigger than the Black Plague, which claimed the lives of tens of millions of people. Bigger than the eruption at Vesuvius. Bigger than anything the world has ever seen. Because it started with heaven stopping in silence for 30 minutes. And when heaven stops in expectant silence, I should anticipate that God is on the move. But sure enough, the silence ends. John, verse 2, saw the seven angels who were standing before God. Likely these are the archangels, two of which are named in the Bible, Gabriel and Michael. You'll know those names. The other five are named in, in, in Jewish tradition. They're named in the Apocrypha. They were given seven trumpets. And so this sixth, seventh seal, this, we have this scroll. It was in the hand of God. The lamb is opening the seals. The seventh seal is being opened. And, and, and as it's being opened, it unleashes the seven trumpets. So the seven trumpets are actually the content of the seventh seal. We're going to get 
to it eventually, but that seventh trumpet is actually the seven bowls. And so everything is contained, everything is on the scroll. And, and what we're reading here is the content of this stroll, scroll, it is the judgment of God. This is God unveiling the full impact of his judgment on the world. Now listen, Christian, I want you to hear this. If, if what we read here is really going to go down as John records it, the question is, should it not inform every aspect of our lives here and now? But sadly, most of us have arranged the priorities of our life in a way that does not reflect the reality of Revelation. As if, as if we're le leading our lives without any thought whatsoever as to what God is going to bring on the earth in judgment. We need to think about this. Have we arranged the priorities of our life so they reflect the reality of what is to come? This tweet I saw this week, it, it caught my eye. And it's not, it's not a, as far as I can see, the man is not a Christian man. He's a motivational type speaker, speaks into business, that kind of thing. But here's what he said. This is a, a tweet um, and his uh, Twitter handle is I am Aaron Will. He said this, what fascinates me is that hardly anyone is wondering what we're actually doing on this planet. Most accept the work, eat, entertainment, sleep cycle as life. Again, this man's not a Christian as far as I can tell, but he's speaking right to us as Christians because most of us, even as Christians who understand the things that we're reading in God's word, we're in the same cycle. We're so caught up in the work, eat, entertainment, sleep cycle. And it just goes round and around. We accept this as life and have no desire for a deeper understanding of our purpose in this universe. And as Christians, more than anyone else on the planet, we should understand this. That there is a higher purpose. There's more going on here. And, and work, eat, entertainment, sleep is not life. Not the abundant life that Jesus described. It is aimless. Drudgery. It's short-sighted. It's naive. It's unbecoming of a follower of Christ. As Christians, our lives are to be focused, directed, joy-filled, purposeful. Paul said, in fact, of those who received the gospel, who, who believed in the atoning, the substitutionary atoning death of Jesus Christ, who have appropriated for themselves the power of the resurrection in their own life, for those who have received Christ as Lord and Savior, that we have, this is what he writes in Colossians 3, 3, we've died and our life is hidden with Christ in God. We've died, died to self. He would say in Galatians 2, 20, that we are crucified with Christ. The self is dead. I am Christ. My life hidden with Christ in God. He would say to the Philippians, for me to live is Christ. Everything about my life is Christ. The priorities of my life are arranged by Christ. To die, that's gain. 
Then I get to see him. But right now I'm living for him. I'm preaching for him. I'm telling people about him. I'm showing mercy in his name. I'm living a holy life for me to live as Christ. Here and now to die is gain. My life is centered on the gospel, on Christ, and that's what makes life awesome. And when I pass from this life, it's going to be even better. And that's, that's, by the way, that's how you anticipate God's next big move. It's not, it's not attempting to piece together all the different things that are happening at the end times with all due respect to those pastors who put up some kind of big wall chart and try to place everything on it and are trying to relate every little thing in the news to things you read in the word of God and in the apocalyptic passages. With all due respect to that crowd, that's not the purpose of these scriptures. It's to compel a life whose priorities are arranged around the gospel. That's why we have this. This is the normal course of our lives. It is alignment with Christ. And so the question is, is that true for you? As you examine the priorities of your own life, when heaven stops in silence, we ought to take stock and think about what's coming next. And I should be so sure of what God is going to do, knowing that he will answer the prayers of his saints. That's what we see next. God is interested in answering the prayers of his saints. Remember back in chapter 6, you've been following along in the series, chapter 6, verse 10, you have these martyrs and they're below the altar and the altar has their blood on it and their lives were sacrificed for the sake of the gospel. And they're waiting for their vindication. And these martyrs were praying in chapter 6, verse 10, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Well, the silence of verse 1 could also be in part that which comes just before prayer starts. You've been in these situations with a few people, and you're going to pray together, and someone's leading it, and someone says, okay, let's bow our heads, let's just pray, and, and you just leave it open for people to pray, and then there's that. Right? Have you been in that prayer time? Where you just say, let's pray, and then no one prays, and it's just quiet, and you know what everyone's thinking? Everyone's thinking, I wish someone else would just pray when really you should be taking advantage of that time to just focus on the Lord and just thank Him and begin worshiping Him. And you don't need to pray out loud and no one needs to pray out loud. And in part, at least, that's what's happening here in, in, in verse one with this silence is it's, it's a pause before prayer, before the prayers of God's people are acknowledged. And as this scene unfolds, we see in verse 3, another angel who came and stood at the altar, and he has a golden censer in his hand, and that's a flat open pan, would have a handle on it, and the priest would use it to move hot coals to or from the altar. In this case, it was mixed with much incense, the verse says, to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. Verse 4, you have the smoke of the incense rising up with the prayers of the saints. So all the people here with like Catholic backgrounds and Anglican backgrounds, you're all like, oh yeah, see, I told you, right? 
And all the evangelicals are slightly uncomfortable right now with the thought of incense. But here it is in the scriptures. The angels are involved somehow in lifting these prayers to God, but not as mediators because we know we have only one mediator between God and man, and that's the man Jesus Christ, 1 Timothy 2.15. There is no other mediator, it's just Jesus. But somehow these angels are involved in lifting our prayers up before the throne of God. Now make no mistake that what we're seeing in Revelation, the judgments of God being revealed are the answer to the prayers of God's people. You can read the entirety of Revelation and say, you know what these chapters are all about? God answering prayer. He's given us the answer to all of these prayers, not just the prayers of the martyrs, but the verse says that these are the prayers of all the saints. These are your prayers. These are my prayers. Prayers for vindication. Prayers for justice. Prayers for unbelievers to be saved. And as we saw last week in chapter 7, prayers for Israel to recognize her Messiah and be saved. It's just, it's just comforting to know in, in the midst of looking at all that's going on here at the end times and everything that God is giving to us, it's just comforting to know that God is hearing our prayers. Here's the proof. These prayers are being lifted up before the Lord. And Grant Osborne said this, and, and when we think about our prayers and we're thinking about these prayers specifically coming from martyrs, coming from all Christians and all the different prayers that we can pray, and we think about the deep hurts that can come in our lives, the traumas, the tragedies, the abuses, the unreconciled relationships, the heartaches that we've endured, Osborne said this, such prayers allow us to place our deep hurts before God and know that he will deal justly with those who have mistreated us. Thus, we can overcome these deep hurts and love the unlovely. I mean, we can do that for one reason alone. We can be confident that he's going to take care of it. You see, we overcome the hurts because we trust God to do the vindicating in his way, and according to his time, he's going to bring about justice. We don't need to, not for ourselves. This relieves us of the burden of vindicating ourselves, and we can say with confidence, God knows what he's doing. Imagine being able to say that in the midst of whatever traumas you're going through. God knows what he's doing. And we don't often think of it, but in the midst of tragedy in our lives, we immediately tell people, or we ourselves, we run to the book of Psalms. We go back to the Old Testament, and we, we listen to these beautiful songs of, of, of crying out to God for help. But when you realize that revelation is the answer to the prayers in the Psalms, when we're in difficult seasons, we should be going to revelation to read the end of the story and know that God vindicates us that he's actually hearing those prayers that the saints in the Old Testament prayed. God knows what he's doing. And so all of this, it begins and ends with prayer. Well, the angel took the censer, filled it with fire. This is verse 5 from the altar, and he threw it on the earth. 
Of course, anything like that coming from heaven results in thunder and rumblings and lightning and earthquake, everything that you would expect when God is on the move. And he's on the move in response to the prayers of his people. And so you and I need to keep praying. Keep lifting our cries before the Lord because we know that God is bringing about his will on earth. You see this next? God is bringing about his will on earth. And this is, this, this is the moment when verse 6, the seven angels who had the seven trumpets, they start to blow them. We're now into the next phase. The seals are all open. We're now into the trumpets, the, the judgment of God. Trumpets are a big deal in Jewish worship and tradition, and so it's unsurprising that they come here as a harbinger of judgment at the end of the age. And as each of the first four trumpets is blown in verses 7 through 12, we see the devastation that is leveled on the earth through natural disaster, but which also has collateral damage on human beings. This is still, by the way, because it is only affecting a third of the earth in each of the four uh, first tr trumpets that are sounded. Uh, this is still a very measured response by God. It's still not the wholesale judgment that is yet to come, the devastation that will be leveled on the earth and her people, especially um, in the bold judgments, but also the last three trumpets. I mean, at this point, God is he's, he's still restraining himself. I mean, we already talked about how God was, was giving opportunity for others to hear the gospel and respond to it. And so God was holding back the judgment. And he's still doing that here. The hope is that seeing the divine wrath, seeing these judgments come down on the earth, that some would repent, some would go, we've offended God, we're sinners, we need to turn to him. So verse 7 is the first trumpet, hail and fire mixed with blood. Verses 8 and 9, the second trumpet, the sea became blood. It had an impact on trade with ships being destroyed. Verses 10 and 11, a third, uh, the third trumpet, a great star fell from heaven blazing like a torch. That could be a meteor, something like that. We're not told specifically. A third of the waters became wormwood. Wormwood's actually a plant. And it's a medicinal plant, so if it's used in the right measure, it's helpful to people. But like any medication that we could take, if you take too much of it, it, it hurts us, it, it'll kill us. And it's, um, it's described here as being bitter or poison. So a third of the waters became wormwood. Many people died because of this poisoned water source. Verse 12, the fourth trumpet, a third of the sun, moon, stars, their light were darkened. And no indication at all how that would actually happen. I mean, you read through these, and, and you should be echoing, if you're a student of the Word, you should, be, you should be hearing some echoes from the book of Exodus and the ten plagues that came on the nation of Egypt. There's obviously parallels there to what Moses um, was demonstrating, what God was demonstrating through Moses at the time to Pharaoh. And, and really, those ten plagues were a showdown between Yahweh, the God of Israel, and, and Pharaoh, and the pantheon of Egyptian gods which related to the natural world. And God was saying to the, to the small g gods of this superpower of the day, that's what Egypt was, the superpower of the day, God was saying to them through these 10 plagues, I win. God was saying to them, I always win. If you're going to come against me, you're going to lose. 
in a battle between me, Yahweh, God, and the gods of this world, the gods of this world will always lose. And that epic battle between Pharaoh and God was in fact a foreshadowing of what we're reading here now with the trumpets, where God once again is revealing his absolute power, his sovereignty over all things. And he's saying to the world today, that was Egypt and we're looking forward to something in the future, but he's saying the very same thing to the world today, the world that you and I are living in. You think you're so great, powers of this world. You think you're so in control. You think you don't need me, Yahweh says. But you're picking a fight that you cannot win. And on the timeline, we're somewhere between Exodus 7 to 10 and the plagues and Revelation and, and these trumpet judgments that are coming. And we have to ask ourselves, if God were, were to return right now, what would he be judging in us? What, what, what gods would he be defeating? What are the gods of this age? And, and more importantly for us as Christians, because we say we worship Jesus Christ alone, but then along the way, we stop into all these other little temples to do a little worshiping. We have these other gods. We have these idols in our homes and in our lives. What do I need to repent of? What needs to change? What needs to go? In fact, let's talk about that for a moment. Let's talk about the six gods of this age. And you'd be asking the question if you worship at any of their temples. The six gods of our age, they're known by various names. I've tried to keep this very simple. The first is this, the God of comfort. The God of comfort. By the way, rest and comfort are God's idea. They're a gift from God. He wants us to rest. That was part of the original creation, that there was a day of rest built into it. But what we've done is we've elevated leisure, we've elevated comfort to the level of a God. The weekend, vacation, and retirement are the goal for us. We endure Monday to Friday to get to the weekend. We endure week after week after week in any given year to get to that vacation week. And we endure year after year after year of our career to get to that retirement day. And in fact, the smartest among us will have planned out so carefully that we can retire early and begin living for ourselves. That's the God of comfort that we worship. And instead, the gift that God gives us of comfort is a, just a small taste of what we're to re realize for ourselves in heaven, in our eternal rest. Now, related, this second God, maybe they're twin gods, the God of escape. The God of escape promises its devotees a pain-free, stress-free life. The God of escape offers us various ways to achieve this in our lives. Cannabis. 
alcohol, drugs, prescription, or otherwise. These are methods by which we escape. You say, well, I'm in the clear. I do none of those. But escapism is also through binge-watching, gaming, sports, both, both playing and following, shopping. You just find comfort in it. Credit cards are all maxed because that's the place I go. That's my escape. I roll my debt back in. I just keep rolling my debt. I just need to buy more things to make myself feel good. Or eating. This, this God of escapism is everywhere as we try to avoid our pain in ways that do not include the Holy Spirit helping us, who is called the helper and the comforter, counselor. Ready for a third one? Or have you had enough? The God of science. God of science. The creed only recently developed at the temple of the God of science is follow the science. Curiously, it is not scientists who say that. It has bias behind it. It's a political phrase. It is a religious phrase. It is spoken with intent to deceive, to manipulate. You can't follow the science apart from theism or a belief in God, or at the very least, ethics that back the science. Science, in fact, one of the best understandings that we can have of science is this. Science is the discovery of God's creating and sustaining methodology. Science is the discovery of God's creating and sustaining methodology. And science that forbids inquiry is the worst kind of religion. How about this one, the God of celebrity? The God of celebrity is no longer reserved. If you are a devotee of the God of celebrity, it's no longer reserved for those who are like super famous, like Hollywood stars or, or musicians. Not for the, the people who, who achieve the highest levels of, of being famous. This God of celebrity would promise anyone the recognition. However small, you can be a celebrity with a select group of people. But this is promised to us with the likes and the shares of social media. And how many young souls especially are being crushed under the weight of the pursuit of affirmation and recognition that comes with those likes and shares. And parents, if you do not believe that this is crushing the souls of your children, your teenagers, then you are naive indeed. This God is pervasive. If you go to the temple of social media in any of its forms, beware that this God will possess you. Two more, the God of wealth. The God of wealth. Wealth is not the problem. Money is not the problem. Money is never the problem. Paul said in 1 Timothy 6.10, the love of money 
The love of money, not money itself, but the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And Jesus warned in the Sermon on the Mount, this is Matthew 6, 24, you cannot serve God and money. You can serve God and you can have money that helps you in your service of God, but you cannot serve both of those. And in Matthew 19, 23, he said, only with difficulty, Jesus said, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. It's not impossible. It's just harder. Because money, the love of money, is such a strong, strong false deity in our lives. So seductive. I have one more. Do you know which one I missed? It's the, maybe the most obvious the God of sexuality. One of the most beautiful gifts the Lord has given to us has been so distorted by the culture as to make it virtually unrecognizable from what God intended. Sexuality is a God that floods the web and flies its co-opted flag, the co-opted symbol on its flag, demanding our compliance and our allegiance and perverting what God said is good. Now note, each of these six gods represents gifts from God. That's the crazy part of it. It's things that God gives us. It's blessings that he's poured out to us. But these are gifts that have been distorted and which have usurped the place that only God should have in our lives. In fact, a phrase that I learned many, many years ago, I'm sure you've heard it as well, that's so helpful when we think about all of this is worship the giver, never the gift. Worship the giver, never the gift. And if you ever become so enamored by any of the gifts that God gives you, take a step back and go, do I love this too much? Am I worshiping at the altar of this gift that God has given to me? Because these are the gods of this age that are going to be ruthlessly judged by God at the end. And as far as our part in this, as we think about all of this, if God's will is that, is that these things, the things that are in the kingdom of God in heaven should be done on earth. We pray that in the Lord's prayer. We were taught by Jesus, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Then these gods, if that's it, there's only one God in heaven. Then these gods must be renounced by us. And the one true and living God must be on the throne, must be the only one on the throne of our hearts. In a wonderful little book called Jesus Wins, uh, Dayton, um, let me just get his name right, Hartman. Dayton Hartman said this. I, I read the book this week. It's 125 pages. It's a, it's a book that um, very quickly runs through end times understandings. And so it's a wonderful um, addition to our series. And there's a link in our sermon notes to the book and to a podcast where Dayton is talking about the book, he said this, the kingdom of Christ is already here through his church. Our churches are outposts or embassies of Christ's rule and reign. And yet we are still waiting for the return of the king with his kingdom in full. This is the now but not yet aspect of the kingdom. The kingdom is here through us. We're seeking to live out the principles of the kingdom of God. The full realization of the kingdom is yet to come. And so we're this outpost. 
Our church is an outpost. Your home, your Christian home is an outpost. You as a Christian are an ambassador in a foreign land. And this is why we have to hold out on what we believe about all of these things. This is why we hold out, for example, against the full force of the culture's view of sexuality. We're the only ones who believe what we believe about sexuality, a biblical model for that, what God intended. We're the only ones still believing this. And we're holding out against the full force of the culture. We have to be the outpost for those who are caught in non-biblical forms of sexuality. We have to be an outpost. We have to keep the light on so that when they come to their senses and realize it, There's a place for them to go, a refuge. That's our mission in the world. Keep the light on. Make it possible for people to hear the gospel and for sinners to find their way home. It's our raison d'etre. It's why we exist as a church. It's our mission. Hartman said this, for the believer knowing that Jesus will come back and that he wins ought to drive us to live differently and distinctly from the world around us and to do for others what Jesus has done for us. Jesus left the light on and we found our way home. So as best we can, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We're seeking to live that out, to bring about his will on earth, and in doing so, uh, and doing so in advance of the final terrible judgment to come. This is the last phrase. And John shifts again, hearing and then seeing this eagle, verse 13, crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead, pronouncing woes. This, the last three trumpets are more intense judgment to come. We'll see that in chapter 9. And judgments now that are directed at people themselves, no longer collateral damage, but the direct result of the judgments of God. Woe, 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 the eagle says. To those who dwell on the earth at the blast of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow, God has revealed it all right here. And tragically, tragically, most are ignoring it. To their own peril. We see this sin all around us, don't we? And it's on us, in light of this, to live out the kingdom of God, to be that outpost. So here it is, the entire thing we've looked at, our summary statement, when heaven stops in expectant silence, I should anticipate God's next big move, knowing that he will answer the prayers of the saints, bringing about his will on earth in advance of the final terrible judgment to come. And that should compel all of us to examine our lives and to rearrange our priority, priorities around the will of God here and now. Amen? Let me pray for us. Father, my heart and my prayer coming out of this is that um, this church would always have the light on. And that those who are caught in sin, who are not yet with Christ, who are caught up in this world and who are facing the judgment of God would find the gospel hear the gospel, believe it, and receive it. And God, I would pray that not only for our church, but for every family, every 
every home represented here and all the different neighborhoods and communities that we live in, God, that we would shine the light, that people would find Christ. So thank you again for the kindness of giving us your word, warning us, encouraging us, and teaching us today. God, bless our time now as we come to your table to remember the amazing sacrifice that the Lord has made for us. We pray this in his name. Amen.